0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild. Or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit forthewild.world donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hey, For the Wild community, it's Ayanna here. We are so grateful to all of the amazing members of our community who contribute to bringing this podcast to life each week including all of our generous supporters over on patreon to keep for the wild freely accessible to all long term we're exploring how we can fund the podcast without resigning ourselves to overly commercializing our airtime in order to sustain production to continue to bring listeners weekly content like this we're extending an invitation to anyone who is able to stand with us in this work we're dreaming into a goal of raising five thousand dollars per month over on patreon If you value this podcast and the great visionaries who have been featured on this platform, we invite you to join us on Patreon. We're so grateful for the generous sponsorships we've received, but we cannot produce the podcast on their generosity alone. We need listener support to stay running and commercial free. Join us at patreon.com slash for the wild. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Carolina
1: rubio Mackwright. And so I think the playfulness of art and giving ourselves permission to play and imagine a better world is what I love about the art and the policy and the law is just an opportunity to understand that we can rebuild things we can do it again just the same way that we do with clay you know like things are fragile they break but we can build them again
0: carolina rubio mackwright is an artist immigration lawyer and activist fighting for immigrant and humanitarian rights she believes art is the most powerful way of bringing humans together and dissolving walls and cages that separate us she has thus mixed her law and art into a nonprofit called Touching Land that uses hands on experiential art to empower, build bridges, and decolonize food. Well, Carolina, thank you so much for coming on for the while today. I really respect your work and am so looking forward to this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to talk to you.
0: Well, I'd like to just jump in and start our conversation in
1: recognition
0: of touching land. I've heard you share that this name recognizes the power and memory that physical land holds for many immigrants. And I think about how, you know, the United States is responsible for the ongoing displacement of indigenous peoples throughout Central America who are being forced to leave because of environmental degradation, climate change, etc. And then upon their arrival in the United States, so many are forced to relinquish their knowledge and practice of land tending in order to survive. And this unfolding is something that I rarely hear discussed in the media. And just, you know, the intersections of immigration, assimilation, and a loss of earth-based wisdom So as an introduction to touching land, I wonder if you could speak to this reality a bit and how the act of working with the land in any form can rekindle a sense of empowerment, safety, and pride.
1: Yes, absolutely. So first I want to acknowledge that I'm standing in a Leni Lenape land that was stolen. That is the land that I'm in. I'm in New Jersey, New York. um, So it is of the Lenape peoples. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much connectivity and and so much meaning behind, you know, just the name of touching land and the work that we do in connecting land with people and especially their rights, because so much of who we are is, is forgotten when we become immigrants. I'm an immigrant myself. And so we are forced to assimilate to cultures and systems that are not part of us, you know, that happens a lot with the indigenous women that we work with in touching land. Um, So it's, it's really special to create a space where we honor those traditions, where we honor, you know, the, the knowledge and the, the, you know, the incredible wealth of information that these indigenous people have and that immigrants have as a whole uh, where they can feel seen and they can see, they can feel like it's okay to, to embrace our uniqueness. You know, it's not easy to navigate systems where you are seen as a, you know, just basically you come in as an immigrant and you're expected to slave yourself without getting even minimum or livable wages, let alone, you know, practice your culture or find your your, you know, what the land is supposed to give and what you're supposed to to feel as a community uh, culturally. So it's it's been really a privilege and something beautiful to be able to build, Touching Land, this nonprofit where women, immigrants, and also men come to a space where they can touch clay, work with clay, work with food, and use it as a tool to not only empower themselves, but you know force visibility into spaces of privilege, like uh, the amazing studio that is Brooklyn Clay, where we base most of our classes at, but also just the the ability to to come together as a community and just be able to to feel seen. I think that's one of the the biggest things that we do at Touching Land.
0: Mm. Thank you for doing that work. And for years, people have pointed out that the notion that immigrants are criminals simply isn't true. And on top of that, undocumented folks are paying taxes like the rest of us. But for as long as the United States has existed, this white supremacist myth of immigrants and migrants as a social drain has really occupied a permanent space in our collective imagination, in part because it conveniently distorts the reality that without the exploitation of immigrants and migrants, the United States could not function the people who don't want immigrants in this country are also the same people whose lives depend on them for labor and care. So do you think debunking these myths will ever be enough, or is it time to move into a new narrative of migration altogether? Where do immigrants need to be made visible where they aren't?
1: You know, I think that it's, it's going to take everything. I mean, I I like starting from the beginning where our immigration laws were drafted by a bunch of white guys. There were only 15 women in Congress at the time. There were no immigrants in that room and they were a bunch of business owners. And when World War II happened, we needed the help from Central American workers so that we could harvest the land. And so we brought in all those immigrants and we said, yeah, you can stay. Then we continued to just slightly change the law because, as you've learned uh, with Trump in the last four years, you know that the power of immigration and, and policy really is held by the president. So we've we've seen a situation where we've created a system where we depend on immigrants, but their invisibility and keeping them essentially enslaved is what continues to you know to give us you know very cheap groceries and very cheap produce and labor. So, this invisibility, as you're saying, is is you know we're all benefiting from from uh, migrant workers being being mistreated, and uh, you know Tyson Company mistreating workers as well. so it's it's this idea of this dependency where eleven million undocumented workers really hold our economy. so to me it's it's a combination of understanding our history, understanding the whitewashing like why laws are drafted in a way that corporations are not held accountable, but we punish the people that are doing the work that we don't wanna do, right? That the, the American citizen does not want to be in the field picking up strawberries. And so we have to not only debunk and understand that these workers don't commit crimes, You know, over 30% of Fortune 500 companies are, are built by immigrants. We are risk takers. We have to debunk, and we also have to come to grips with the fact that, first of all, policies have to change, but also we have to look into our lives and how we're choosing to live and how we're choosing this issue and navigate this issue because it is connected with everything. Like, where are you buying your produce? Where are you? Are you supporting your your domestic workers, your your nannies? Like, are you paying them fairly? So it's a conversation that we have a lot at Touching Land with some of our workshops where. We bring these conversations that we don't necessarily have on the daily, but we bring them to the forefront, and we make sure that those issues are connected, where people were outraged by border crisis and, and detention centers and separation of children, not realizing that separations happen on the you know every day in our country when people are deported for committing a tiny misdemeanor, like or just not having a driver's license. It's our inability to have created these systems effectively in order to to navigate this world without being a slave of capitalism. So I think we have to come to terms uh, with the power that we all have as individuals in generating conversations. And I think nations have to come together with the fact that Climate migration is a reality that is happening right now, that will continue to happen. And how are nations going to come together and create a policies that will not be separating children in the future in other countries? I spoke at the UN a few weeks ago, and I made sure that this was something that, that is in the forefront of people's you know policies, where nations have to come together and understand that climate change is happening, and we're going to have more migration and we're going to have more victims of climate change that are going to end up um, you know, moving north. So I think it's a collection of, of it's a new way of seeing and an understanding, like an awakening that we all have to have to have not only as an individual, but also as a collective.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you point out that one of the greatest barriers is that immigrants and migrants in this country Remains separate from citizens for many different reasons. But one of them certainly being that the United States continues to be a deeply segregated country. And when citizens and migrants do interact with each other, it's often in the context of labor. So there are certain power dynamics that color one's perceptions. And this is one area where touching land really seeks to address this discrepancy in a holistic manner. So can you share more about how you see this
1: changing narratives and relationships for immigrants? Absolutely. So, you know, when, 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 when I founded Touching Land, we started doing workshops in nonprofits, mostly with domestic violence survivors and, um, you know, victims of, of uh, just oppression. And, you know, I I really wanted to push the spaces like very, You know, there are very sterile spaces in our cities and and where we live and this idea of segregation, um, which is pretty much very much alive all over. So I wanted to bring the students into a beautiful space where you would disrupt the space by just having your physical presence in there. And it was Brooklyn Clay. Like the studio has been an incredible partner of ours where they invited us to come in. And so immigrants would come in and be sort of confused. What am I doing here? Is this really where I should be? And so it's been beautiful to see how immigrants through the four-week or six-week programs, how this this idea of, no, you belong here, and how if laws are not going to change, we're going to change just the social dynamics that are happening in communities. And so women would come in, they would feel a little bit shy, maybe they don't belong in the space, they don't know where things are. And you could even see the change in their body postures as as time progresses and how they felt like they belonged in this community and a culture of ceramics, which was beautiful. So women, you know, immigrant women would leave almost making friendships with the studio owners and other students that were there. So we started pushing those narratives and then we started creating uh, the Building Bridges program where we. We bring empowered, already empowered immigrants because there's something really beautiful about giving someone a lump of clay, right? A lump of, of land and telling them, you know, give yourself permission to imagine whatever you want and create it for yourself. And so there's that freedom that immigrants don't feel every day. You know, there's a blanket of fear and a blanket of my life could be shattered at any second that immigrants navigate with, that mental health toll that they're able to release and ignore when they're working with clay. And so after they go through the Know Your Rights, you know, because that's an important part of the curriculum, where they understand their rights, they understand that there are inalienable human rights that nobody can take away from them. Once they go through the program, they can now join a Building Bridges program where they're placed in a room with more privileged white people that attend the studio or that live in the neighborhood, And they can sit down and create something together where they can have conversation and they can see the commonalities of just being human. You know, they can see their humanity and they can see each other reflected. And so it's a beautiful sort of like semiotic relationship that happens that really, you know, those connections, human connections will survive and will dictate whatever narrative you tell in your mind of the immigrant that you might have heard through the news Now you have somebody to connect it to where it no longer is a myth, but it is a reality. It is, you know, that person drinks Dunkin' Donuts or they, you know, they have the same, they did the same shape as I did. And so these simple commonalities really destroy those walls and those barriers that we have of segregation. So it's been beautiful to see uh, the transformation that has happened through time.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to talk a bit about child separation and, you know, child separation is something that will forever define the Trump administration, but I don't think it is talked about nearly enough because it's such an abhorrence. And for Americans to speak about this would require us to acknowledge that these tremendous human rights violations took place as we went about our daily lives But you are adamant that all of us have a role in this story, and at a minimum, it's our responsibility to feel the anger and grief of these stories in order to ensure that history is told correctly. So in recognition of this, I'd like to begin by pointing out for listeners that the Trump administration had always known that they would be unable to reunite children separated at the border. This wasn't just incompetence or poor planning or a mistake. This was premeditated. So I'm wondering if you could speak about the pilot test run that took place in 2017 in El Paso, what the administration learned from that and what this all means for reunification. What does reunification look like for the 2000 plus children that were separated and what's going to happen to the 600 children who are currently without parents?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, just even admitting that, that that happened feels like such a nightmare. And having children at the time that were very small, you know, I, I took trips down to detention centers and and organized strangers through Instagram and Facebook to come down with me and represent families for seven days at a time um, at Dilly Detention Center. Um, you know, I think that... The pilot program that happened in 2017 is just not talked enough. People don't know that that happened and how CBP essentially ran a zero tolerance program in the summer in El Paso, where they started separating families. They started separating kids and parents. And what happened with the pilot program is it was a complete failure. Customs and Border Protection actually had to report what happened uh, during this time of where, you know, they implemented the program. And they recommended to the Trump administration, you know, insisted that the program was going to fail because they were unable to track parents and children. They they just couldn't. And they started deporting people before they could get their information. So essentially with immigration, it's like they didn't even have a program that could connect parents and children. They started putting children in the unaccompanied track, unaccompanied minors track, which does not allow for the other tr- like the other program to make a connection and you would think that they would at least have bracelets for children and parents in order to track them but they didn't even do that so the pilot program is a failure customs and border protection informed the administration the program is going to fail you're going to lose children you're going to lose parents you're not going to be able to reunify them and yet they still went ahead and did it and You know, I think that that is the part that angers me the most, that they knew they were going to fail and that they would lose this incredible bond that you're never going to be able to repair. And so being in detention centers when reunification was happening in July in 2018, you know, mothers were given pieces of paper with uh, an age and maybe a name of their child or the child would be given a piece of paper, not even like a form, but like a scratched on piece of paper. This is how absolutely abhorrent and sloppy the, um, this, this execution of, of the policy was. And so the trauma, the immense fear, the shoving people from detention center f- to the other detention center is something that I'm personally never going to forget, and that I'm going to continue to talk about it, so that people realize the complete negligence, incompetence, and truly, I think that torture was the the object. These poor children that whose parents were deported in the pilot, because most of the children that were lost that we know of were, um, you know, were from the pilot program. Those children are probably not going to be able to be reunified with their parents because some of them are probably dead. They were seeking refuge. You know, they were seeking asylum, which means they were persecuted in their country of origin. How do you describe, how do you ask a five-year-old to describe? It took me four months with three other lawyers to find a little girl that had a pink shirt, brown eyes, and brown hair. A three-year-old won't be able to tell you or describe their parents or know their parents' name necessarily. So this is, you know, this is what we're dealing with, and and I think those those children are going to end up most likely not being reunified. I mean, we know that the Trump administration was releasing some of the information which they were keeping from uh, from advocates, which is un you know unacceptable. Uh, but I guarantee you that the information that they have is not going to be very helpful because they just didn't have the they didn't have the system in order to, you know, to execute this properly. So that information is lost because it was never captured. So these children will most likely end up in foster care and um, maybe up for adoption if, if that's the track, uh, unless there's still some litigation happening. But it's, it's, uh, it's something that we all as you know, people that live in this country and, and Americans are going to have to deal with and are going to have to confront, which I think will be is hard but necessary in order to never again separate children from parents.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, and I'd like to ask about the psychological ramifications of these forced separations, but I also know there is a tremendous amount of trauma that develops just from being inside any one of the detention facilities across the country, regardless of whether or not you have a child or are with your family. So as someone who is advocating on behalf of immigrants, I wonder if you can speak to the truth of what we are subjecting people to in these facilities on a daily basis.
1: I mean, it's it's really hard because what the public doesn't know is we have no access to the facilities as a whole. So like I've never seen where they sleep, where they eat, where the children are, if they're, you know, the alleged daycare, like where it is. We have no access to that. We were graced <laughs> and, and thankful. thankfully ICE allows us to have a sort of trailer inside detention where immigrants can come and see us, but we cannot see them. So they can come and meet us, but we can't go and ask for them. They are prisoners. You know, they are treated like, um, you know, you're, you're, first of all, these immigrants are, are fleeing horrific conditions, whether it's, Uh, You know, violence or uh, climate, you know, flooding, whatever it is, they're fleeing, and that is the only alternative they have. Like they have to, they have to leave because if they stay, they will die. That's the only reason why you would pack up your family or yourself and leave. And they're greeted with uncertainty. Number one, they don't know what's going to happen. They're shoved around from CBP. They're they're forced into a very, very cold Yelera, the icebox at first, and then they're shoved into a detention center and they're treated like animals. You know, they um, the water is contaminated in some areas. Uh, when women come and they have a, you know, they need mental support, they give them an Advil. You know, I've seen women that have been suicidal and 15 minutes later, they come in with an Advil. They gave them an Advil and that was supposed to solve their, their mental health issue of being you know detained for for days which shouldn't be happening but right now we have people and children that we have women and children that have been detained for over 140 days there's been children that have been detained for over a year waiting to to get their case resolved when there's no reason for that to be happening there had been a pilot program where it was very successful in the last year of the Obama year when this program allowed for people to be released and then just come and report and not have to be held in in a prison setting, where you have no freedom, Uh, you can't receive anything. I mean, I've smuggled stickers, I can't bring anything in but letters. So I bring letters from from children, so that they can feel seen because they feel forgotten. And so the mental toll of extra trauma after you've experienced a traumatic episode is really tough, because I think one uh, aspect that we don't think about is you're stuck in this detention for a long time, where you can't really talk to people, you can't really feel in like you're a part of a community, you don't know what's happening to your case, this, there's this uncertainty. Then you're released to your sponsor, which hopefully is somebody that you have trust with. And from there, you are forced to be in a, in a community where you have no connections to language, no connection to to like religious organizations, no connection to anything. And you're expected to navigate in this world with zero tools. So I think it's pretty unbelievable that we have this system where there's no net of protection and support, but that they're expected to, you know, it's a system that's designed for failure. They're, they're designed to give up from being detained that long. And, you know, the the brave ones linger, you know, like stay on and fight which is most of them, but some of them like give up along the way and they end up signing a deport, you know, just a removal order, just, they just essentially self-deport because they can't without uncertainty. It's, It's not necessary. It's completely unnecessary, unfair, and a system that I hope the Biden administration destroys and there's no need for it. We need just programs that were established at the end of the Obama administration where People can just come and check in and they they can sort of start their life again and not be detained like prisoners. Sorry, that was really winded.
0: No, it's 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 necessary. And I'm wondering what sort of reparations do you think need to be made to the children and families who have been forcibly separated from, you know, their parents
1: or their families over the past couple of years. I mean, I think to begin with, if if there's if we can reunify those parents with the children, I think that they need to be allowed to be residents immediately and some sort of support, the way that refugees come in here, where they have a year of support, like financial and and so on. I think that as a minimum, they should also get mental health. You know, the trauma of being separated from your parents for three months, not knowing what's happening, not to mention the abuse that happened in in those. Um, and those facilities that didn't, you know, they weren't, they weren't built in order to hold people this way. Like, there's a reason why we don't have orphanages in this country, and it's because we don't believe in in the idea of an orphanage. Um, like, that's why we don't have them. And so, uh, it's it's unbelievable that during this time we traumatized these families, and the trust between child and parent is completely broken because they, re- you know, they re- separated some of these mothers they would tell them that they were they would give the child a bath and that's when they separated the child from the mother so they didn't even get a chance to say goodbye or i will see you or it's going to be okay not to mention the touch you know we're not allowed to touch women or children inside detention center and i think that that's one of the most dehumanizing tools in the world i mean we're in a way we're seeing that right now with covid where like human connection and human touch is imperative for human survival and we're not having that and how people in nursing homes are are not able to be touched how you know i wonder children that don't have affection from have affection from teachers and and uh and friends are not getting that at home necessarily and so i think there's so many layers of trauma and so many layers of invisible trauma and invisible torture that that happen inside detention centers that how do you repair, like, how do you pay for reparations in that way? Like, how can we, how do you even uh, do that? I mean, for me, it's like, let's destroy detention centers, never have them again, because the trauma is immeasurable. So like, that's the first thing we should do. And we should make sure that history is written properly by, by the, the actors, the people that lived through this, so that we can have a record of what happened. Um, So I'm hopeful that that, you know, I'm I'm filled with hope that this administration, the next administration, Biden-Harris, will do the right thing, Um, but also that us as community members uh, take the right steps in order to make this wrong right. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And for a while, it seemed like the narratives that was being or were being pushed is that It was primarily men who were migrating from Central America to find work in the States and send money back to their families back home. But I'm also aware that the rates of femicide have only continued to increase in Central and South America due to colonialism's festering legacy of patriarchy. So can you speak to the gender dynamic of immigration and what is the makeup in detention facilities and whose release is prioritized?
1: You know, it's interesting because I grew up in Colombia. And so I know the patriarchal system very well, which I think has made me, I, I guess I can read a situation very quickly because I've seen it from a very young age. You know, the makeup and detention centers, their facilities are separated by sex. So women and and, uh, and men are separated. There, there was a detention center that addressed um, trans folks. And, you know, there was huge abuse and, and a lot of resistance from ICE and CBP to acknowledge, uh, individuals that wanted to transition or that, that didn't, that needed to be in that trans pod. It took a lot of incredible advocates to, to you know to bring that to fruition but you know it's it's happening luckily now there's there's um there's a lot of advocates that are making sure that you know it's not just women and men but it's also you know LGBTQ communities and so the makeup of men during child separation and during the zero tolerance policy you know they were actually releasing men much more than women i think the whole idea of this of this policy was to punish women that fled that femicide um, that is horrifically happening, and and you know it'll continue to engulf our, our central and South American communities until you know until we we start changing those those narratives from the top. Um, but again, like colonialism is is tough is tough to to get over, especially um, in South and Central America where like you know the identity is almost unknown. Because you you know I'll, I'll I'll share quickly just from the law perspective, like Colombian laws were copied from the Chileans that copied it from the French and I, as a student, I could tell that our laws didn't go with our people you know they they just did not fit our people, and so I think that there has to be like a an awakening and a, a revamping of of values and of laws and systems, which I think we're seeing on on a on a global level, at least recognizing Black Lives Matter and that our policing is wrong. So I think that that the makeup of uh, you know women and of men is is a little bit different. Women continue to to fled. I don't think there's a space. You know, asylum doesn't recognize being a woman as a as a as a reason to migrate or like to to get an approved asylum, which I really think it should. I think that would change things a lot. I think it's still really difficult to, to, to just navigate that when you're the immigrant and you're entering a society that is still very patriarchal, you know, even this society to me, not as much. So the work that we do at Touching Land with Women is very much about, you know, leaving a domestic abuse situation when there's oppression on, on, every, on every front Unfortunately, especially in this country, um, immigrant men, if they have a partner that is a woman, the woman most likely will have abuse at some point, will experience abuse at some time in their lives. And so uh, part of our program is about empowering and, and recognizing that there is no space for violence and that you can stand up without fearing for um, for your life to be ending, right? If, if, if you stand up uh, for you to end up being murdered. So I think that those are um, realities in that we come in with that I think still you know like the the patriarchy is still very much alive and that um, we have to continue to empower empower women and also tell men that it's okay to feel their feelings just not in a violent way. I do a lot of workshops with men that have had violence and and abusive um, uh, histories and it's really it's really interesting that they don't have a space where they can feel their feelings and share their feelings. So uh, 99% of the workshops at the end end up with men crying their feelings and, and sharing a lot of their frustration. So I think that it's been lovely to see to see the ability to transfer that anger and frustration into clay and not their spouses or their partners but i think again like it's not like you say it's not talked about a lot and it's uh it's very much connected to this colonialism and this inability to understand your place in 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 the world and and in the hierarchy of of this society yeah and
0: i'm thinking about with the slowing of the private prison industry investors and corporations have set their sights on detention centers as a new source of profit and It's more common for us to read about how major tech companies are working with U.S. federal immigration agencies, but less so do we think about the other sectors of industry that are making money off of exploitation of migrants, both in and out of detention centers. So can you speak to this in terms of our consumerism and how we can reevaluate our buying practices through the lens of migrant justice and do any specific corporations
1: come to mind in terms of who should be avoided absolutely i mean i think that as part of a society that you know like we we buy so much and seeing it from the lens of of immigration is is important there's there's a lot i mean tech companies especially but also just if you look at produce, if you look at Tyson Company, you look at a Purdue, um, a lot of the the companies out of Idaho specifically are very abusive towards immigrants. There was also Thai Company. If you've seen at, in the airports, the googly eyes, they're everywhere. That company was um, was known for abusing immigrants. They would get caught with basically enslaving immigrants. Then they would deport all those immigrants and they would be fined yet again, like four months later for hiring you know, undocumented immigrants and keeping them in unhygienic establishments, working them to death and they would just get fined. I think the fine was $56,000, that was it. So I think if, if you do, again, like my, my rule of thumb is you go local, you make sure that you know where your produce is coming from. Um, if you have a local farmer that you can support, like that's important. I think that also uh, clothing, clothing is also an area where there's a lot of abuse, not only locally, but also internationally so understanding where where your clothes are coming from is also one one thing that you can you can look into i mean every single sector of of uh, our economy is populating and and using immigrants uh mostly unfairly because that's what we got used to right like that was the that was like the rule it's kind of like we're used to buying the dollar avocados all of a sudden It's going to be $2 for us to buy an avocado and everyone's going to be up in arms, but they won't be able to connect it back to the farm worker that's making, you know, 50 cents an hour or or something obnoxious like that. And they need to be able to to have a living wage. And so it's better for you to maybe spend the extra dollar on, you know, a chain that is clean locally. Again, I think is the best thing and, and have a greater impact that way. I mean, I'll share quickly that most of the students that I've worked with, the average salary was $8 an hour in New York city, never got a race. There was a woman I met that never got a race in 10 years. She hadn't gotten a raise and she was making $8 an hour. And so it's making sure that you as a, as a buyer or as a employer Uh, you're being fair, even if you're paying under the table, like, are you being fair? Um, So I think it's, it's, um, you have to look, like you're saying, like the lens of, of, um, with a lens of immigration, a lot, I I would say, not only is it like your lifestyle and the the choices that you're making with where you're buying, um, but even taking a little bit of time and investigating uh, those companies that you're supporting, I think that that's the first step of really Truly being committed to to a cause. Put my feet in the soil, infertile ground. I grow. My roots grow strong.
0: And I do think that the Biden presidency is a rebuke of the last or the past four years, and certainly some of Trump's policy as it relates to immigration. But at the same time, the Clinton administration ran on an anti-immigrant platform. The Obama administration deported thousands of Central American children. And Democrats have passed and supported trade deals that have Decimated the economies of Central America. So it's clear that neither party has ever been pro immigrant. And I think Biden is trying to obscure this reality by appointing a diverse group to head various departments. But this doesn't mean that we can stop paying attention to border policy for the next four years. So, as an immigration lawyer, what policies do you want to see addressed? should we be pushing for a moratorium on all deportations, detentions, and raids, legal status for all currently undocumented immigrants, getting rid of exploitative visa programs? You know, what is the most important thing for us to hold Biden to, in terms of
1: immigrants? Oh my gosh, there's so much. I think that the first thing is, you know, DACA. Uh, I think that, you know, I feel very deeply and people, the majority of Americans agree that, you know, DACA should live and be here. Um, but most importantly, like, I think DACA is just a Band-Aid, right? Uh, we have to look at policy as a whole. I mean, I think the 11 million undocumented people that have been living here for 30, 20, 40 years should be allowed to, to you know, get a pardon and, and, and just stop living in fear, because that's not good for communities. You know, I talk a lot about Postville, Iowa, um, and the raid that happened there that was before the last one in Louisiana last year, I believe. It was the biggest raid in the nation. And you, you take away a huge group of immigrants from a community and it decimated the community. Uh, there was a study done over a lapse of 10 years and it, it proved how imperative and important immigrants are in our communities. Um, mental health went down, obesity went up. I mean, the economy just went to the ground in this postal uh, little town in Iowa. So to me, it's, you know, we have to start from the beginning. Like we need to have uh, immigration reform, which hopefully we get the Senate, Um, you know, go Georgia. But I think we have to start from the beginning and we have to start with policies. You know, we haven't really revamped our policies since the 60s. And we need to have immigrants in the room in order to make policies that are going to be if it's going to affect us, why weren't we made part? You know, previous, why weren't we part of the making and drafting of these laws? So for me, it's granting permanent residency to the 11 million undocumented, which a lot are married to U.S. citizens, but can't. You know, they fear going back and depending on a consulate is is too risky, so they stay. I think that absolutely doing away with detention centers is a must. The problem is a lot of economies in little towns depend on these detention centers because they uh, provide competitive salaries. So for me, it's working with these smaller border towns and working and injecting their economy and creating, like for me, it's regenerating the soil. Why don't we start regenerating the soil and try and bring some uh, programming to these towns so that they can, you know, we can push the economy up. There's going to have to be a lot of bridge building in border towns, not only in Mexico, but also in um, the U.S., where we create some partnerships along the way so that, you know, it's no longer this, this huge separation. You know, I talk a lot with my indigenous community friends where we talk about how natural it was to migrate north and migrate south and how there are these natural routes that came with the land. And with time, no, no different than the way that birds or fish or butterflies migrate. And so, um, this invisible line of separation needs to start becoming a little bit, you know, less tangible and a little more fluid. Uh, so, I think there's there's a lot of areas where policy has to has to change. There has to be, you know, a lot of communities in the border depend on both countries. And so, why why don't we create a program where there's there's more flexibility where we we invite farmers to come in and work. You know, people don't want to come and live here and learn a new language and a culture. They want to stay home, but they want to be able to work the land. In the 80s, we changed that law and we basically told people to choose either the U.S. or their country and Central America, and most people stayed here. And so uh, opening up the border so that there can be more of that flexibility, especially thinking of, in the, of the rhythm of. Of the land and of seasons and that necessity of for work, um, so I think I think there has to be a lot of of conversations. And, and to me, it's ma- getting you know getting artists, getting uh, geologists, getting um, you know people that understand wildlife involved in those conversations because it's no longer you know we can't see things in a want from from like one view anymore. Everything is interconnected like just like climate is going to have an effect on immigration Like what are the policies that we need to be looking forward into in order to be ready for this? Um, So I'm I'm hopeful that they will have at least some diversity that will will bring about some um, You know some light into into issues and how important the intersectionality of things is but I think that um, there has to be a huge revamp of of policies and understanding why migration and how do we support these Central American countries that we have decimated? Um, how do we bring them back to to fruition without intervening? But how do we support them so that they can, uh, you know, they don't no longer have this femicide. They no longer have to flee due to flooding. Like, how can we address all of those things?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do think staying informed and pushing for policy and calling our representatives is absolutely vital. But I'd like to ask you in your opinion what does allyship truly look like for immigrants and migrants?
1: I mean, allyship has to come you know, for me it's it's in everything that we do. There's a there's a potential and there's a possibility to generate change and to generate conversation around Um, how, you know, like just as you said, like looking at how can we look, um, through the lenses of immigration when we're, when we're, um, when we are, you know, making justice for immigrants when we're buying things. So for me, it's, it's making sure that you are responsible with, uh, your workers. If you're hiring immigrant workers, that you're responsible with your choices of who you are choosing, who your elector, you know, who are you supporting, Um, you know, it, it, it goes on every single level of our humanity. Um, are you informing yourself about the land that you're standing in? Um, you know, a lot of areas in, in Arizona, the border changed them. And, you know, the people were, immigrants were there. They were, they weren't really immigrants. They lived in that land and the, the line of separation moved on them. So, so to me, it's, it's supporting, you know, writers that are immigrants supporting uh, small businesses that are that are that are built by by immigrants. It's making sure that you are paying a fair salary, that you are standing up if you need to and protest, like be uncomfortable. For me, the great growth really happens when you become uncomfortable and you are willing to to change your perspective. I think um, the American way is very much I know every answer. You never hear somebody say, "Oh, I didn't know that," or "I don't really understand it. Let me think about it." Um, it feels almost like a weakness, and so it's giving yourself enough grace to embrace the fact that you don't know anything and that you're—we're all in process, we're all learning. So, reach out, maybe you know, do take a class or, or uh, contact your local nonprofit that deals with immigrants and see if you can maybe mentor a young immigrant or maybe help help translate or help a mom that's struggling at home. um, I think the more connections that we have on a personal level, that's when change happens. You can donate as much money and that can have an impact, but it'll never change you the way that it'll change you. If you have a connection with an immigrant in a moment where you shared something personal or you built something together, you cooked a meal together. So I think it's, it's um, reflecting and, and also giving yourself some grace and in, in understanding that you have power in changing the narrative, whether at your workspace, if, if it means to, to um, amplify somebody that is of color. So I think it, it, um, we can start immediately just by doing an evaluation of our lives and, and seeing how we can, we can support and continue to be present and make sure that history is told correctly and that we don't just brush through zero tolerance policy and, and the horrors that the Trump administration did with the Muslim ban and so on. So I think there's a lot of power that we have and, and uh, I'm excited to continue to fight forward and, and um, yeah.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, well, Carolina, as we come to a close I'd like to go back to where we started this conversation, at the intersection of law and art, and how you are tending to each of their edges as a way of being in this world and doing this work. So can you close on what working at the edges has meant for you, and how this space can be a really meaningful one to occupy as we imagine a different future?
1: Yeah, so I always say that I live in the estuary. Almost, um, it's the most beautiful, fertile space. It's not exactly law. It's not exactly art. It's somewhere in between. But you know, I I love seeing people grow in the uncomfortable and feeling empowered and feeling seen because there's so much invisibility in uh, when you are an other, right? When you are the other, where you are different, where you don't fit, and so it's for me it's looking at nature and seeing how like they all just seamlessly work in in cohesiveness and and they work each other or they work with each other and for each other so for me touching land is just a manifestation of of working in this area where beauty comes in building the community and challenging others and challenging spaces and being able to to bring life uh and joy because Joy is an act of resistance. And I think so much in so much dread and policy and horribleness, we forget about the joy. And so I think the playfulness of art and giving ourselves permission to play and imagine a better world is what I love about the art and the policy and the law is just an opportunity to understand that we can rebuild things. We can do it again, just the same way that we do with clay. You know, like things are fragile, they break, but we can build them again. And so. I see that as, as a society, as our community where we are in constant change. You know, that's the one constant we have change. And so embracing that change and and um, feeling empowered, I, I feel so lucky to be able to, to live in this in this place where I can see two communities and see them together and see them grow and and um, and come up with other iterations of of food and and law and, uh, clay and law and performance in law. So, so yeah, I'm just, um, I'm, I just feel immense, uh, luck to be able to, to live in this, in this estuary. Mm
0: -hmm. Beautiful metaphor. I love that. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. We went so many places together and, I know it's going to give me and everyone who's tuning in a lot of food for thought and it's just, mm, yeah, (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I talk a lot. (laughs) Oh gosh. It was, it's so (laughs) necessary and you're a great communicator. So I was, yeah, I'm just sitting with it all because so much of this stuff we don't hear and we are not, we're, we don't even, it's not that we don't even hear it, which is true, but we are not we don't give ourselves the space to just sit in it, sit in the complexity, sit in the
1: gravity of it. So yeah. Thank you for this time. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for listening and being open. And so eloquently, you know, your questions were on point and are important. And I appreciate you opening up this space to, you know, to have these uncomfortable conversations and I think it's, it's so important. And like you say, we're not talking about it enough. Uh, we're moving too fast. And sometimes it, it, takes, it takes a little bit to digest, and it's, but it's important.
0: Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Madeline Alana and Samuela Eckert. For the wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Melanie Younger.